this isn't even like a tip of iceberg. This is like a pelican <laughs> standing on an iceberg. There's so much more that is boycott worthy. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, Intercepted, The Young Turks, Politically Reactive, The David Pakman Show, Edge of Sports Radio, and The Daily Show. In the biggest display of athletic defiance for decades, football teams across the nation protested President Donald Trump after he attacked the NFL, NBA, and some of their most popular athletes for daring to draw attention to racism and police violence by taking the knee during the national anthem. At a campaign rally in Huntsville, Alabama, Friday evening, Trump lashed out at players who joined this growing protest movement that, well, in its latest incarnation, was started by the former 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick against racial injustice, kneeling during the national anthem. Trump made the comments while stumping for Senator Luther Strange um, to replace Jeff Sessions in a close Republican primary in Alabama. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners, when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! You know, some owner's going to do that. He's going to say, that guy that disrespects our flag, he's fired. And that owner, they don't know it. They don't know it. They're friends of mine, many of them. They don't know it. They'll be the most popular person for a week. They'll be the most popular person in this country. Because that's a total disrespect of our heritage. That's a total disrespect of everything that we stand for. Okay? Trump's speech took place in the city of Huntsville, a couple hours from where Alabama's Governor George Wallace openly embraced segregation in his 1963 inaugural address. During his remarks, Trump urged football fans to turn off their TVs when athletes protest during the national anthem. But you know what's hurting the game more than that? When people like yourselves turn on television and you see those people taking the knee when they're playing our great national anthem. The only thing you could do better is if you see it, even if it's one player, leave the stadium. I guarantee things will stop. Things will stop. Just pick up and leave. Trump's comments come immediately. Well, Trump's comments immediately drew outrage and criticism. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said in a statement, quote, divisive comments like these demonstrate an unfortunate lack of respect. The NFL Players Association president, Eric Winston, said Trump's comments were, quote, a slap in the face to the civil rights heroes of the past and present. Former NFL wide receiver Anquan Bolden told ABC News he and other athletes are concerned about Trump's hate speech. I think the, the president's words are real divisive. Um, I don't like the, the hate speech that is coming out of his mouth. 
neither do the players in the locker room. So I think as a league, we need to stand together and show that we're, we're all about uniting one another and, and not the divisive rhetoric that's coming out of the mouth of the president. Ahead of a series of NFL games Sunday, Trump again urged football fans to boycott NFL games unless clubs punish players who protest during the national anthem. He tweeted, if NFL fans refuse to go to games until players stop respecting our flag and country, you'll see change take place fast. Fire or suspend. NFL attendance and ratings are way down. Boring games, yes, but many stay away because they love our country. League should back U.S. Trump's comments sparked nationwide protests with players on most teams participating in some form of protest ahead of Sunday games. NFL players who kneeled and locked arms during the national anthem included members of the Buffalo Bills, Denver Broncos, New Orleans Saints, Miami Dolphins, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Cleveland Browns, Philadelphia Eagles, New York Giants. Super Bowl champions New England Patriots also protested with white quarterback Tom Brady interlocking arms with teammates of color as others kneeled. Several players and staff from the Jacksonville Jaguars and Baltimore Ravens also knelt in defiance of a game in London. Journalist Sean King noted 27 players and staff from both teams participated in the protest, making it the most ever in one game, he wrote. And nearly the entire Pittsburgh Steelers team sat out the national anthem in the locker room ahead of their game against the Chicago Bears, who stood on the sidelines with their arms locked in solidarity. Meanwhile, during game one of the WNBA finals, the Lynx linked arms during the national anthem while the Sparks stayed in their locker room. The protest spread to baseball teams as well with the Oakland Athletics' Bruce Maxwell becoming the first major league player to kneel during the national anthem on Saturday night. Maxwell was born on an army base. His father is in the military. He told reporters he's, quote, kneeling for people that don't have a voice. And on Saturday, legendary musician Stevie Wonder joined protesting athletes by kneeling on stage before his performance at the Global Citizens Festival. For people that didn't follow this closely, explain how this started with Colin Kaepernick, what action he took, why he took it, and then what he's done since then. Colin said he's always been bothered by police brutality, but he never understood it as the systemic problem that it was. And he's a young guy. I mean, he, he was 21 when he came into the league, and um, he literally started auditing a few classes at Berkeley. And from those classes, began understanding what systemic racism was, began understanding the systems behind mass incarceration or white supremacy or police brutality. And he was doing this with very few people, including myself, not knowing. I had no idea he was auditing classes. He was kind of undergoing a personal metamorphosis, and he was doing it while he was recovering from these surgeries that he had had. And during last summer, he saw the deaths of Philando Castile in Minnesota and Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge. 
and they just affected him personally. And really without talking to anybody, he decided at uh, a preseason game that he wasn't going to stand up for the national anthem. And so Colin and I had been talking for a couple of months at that point, and it, I think it really was a spur-of-the-moment gut decision where he heard the anthem and just decided, like, I'm not going to stand up for that. I don't feel like it. I don't believe it. And uh, when they noticed, uh, a local reporter asked him about it at the end of the game, and uh, he hadn't prepared any bullets, and, and he just said, I mean, ultimately, it's to bring awareness and make people, you know, realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for, and that's something that needs to change. That's something that, you know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all, and it's not happening for all right now. And, um, you know, that he was doing this to be in solidarity with victims of police brutality. And I was working with those families, Philando Castile's family, Alton Sterling's family, and they were deeply moved by it. And I think when he learned that these families who rarely get anything that resembles justice, when he learned that they were touched by his demonstration, I think he decided to to stick with it. And um, it became a, a national conversation where at, after games, there would be dozens of reporters there just to ask him what he was thinking. And um, people were taken aback because what they found was a bright, brilliant young man who had ample reason to do what he was doing and, and could explain it very articulately. And I think people thought maybe there was no depth there, like a stereotype of an athlete. And I, I had the thought, man, that he was so careful and methodical about how he handled this that um, not that the country would change, but I th I'd never thought he would be, in essence, banned from the league. And that's that's what we have here. A, a guy who in the prime of his physical career was not even brought in for a serious look. And I want to talk about that because the flip side of this argument, I don't mean to say that there's only two ways of looking at this, but you have NFL commentators and others who are saying, look at the stats that he put up last year. He had a terrible season. But this he did isn't, it, you know, you know I'm, I'm saying yeah. that this is what is said, that he, you know, he clearly was, uh, had peaked and sort of was on his way down. What's interesting is that you have, I'm from Wisconsin, so I'm biased, the yeah. best quarterback in the country, Aaron Rodgers, who is not known for being a political guy actually very recently came out and said, no, I think that Colin Kaepernick should be on a team and that this is political. This is not about his yeah. his skills. Yeah. When I saw Aaron say this, like, he's not a guy that takes hard stands on political issues. And, and so when he said something, I was very curious as to what he was going to say. And he said emphatically, without hesitation, like, no, this is not a football decision, that had he not taken the stand that he that he took, he would be on a team right now. He would be the quarterback of the 49ers. Hmm. And so he works out six days a week and has been. He's in incredible shape. He's uh, He could start for a team right away, yet here we are. He has not even been given a backup position. And so there have been a lot of lies about him. Like people said that he wouldn't take a backup position. That's a lie. He would. People said he also would not even accept a smaller contract. That's a lie. He hasn't even been offered any contracts. 
And well, and you have you have guys who have criminal convictions, yeah, uh, who have done time in prison. I mean, Michael Vick and the whole you know dog torturing thing, and he you know he comes back into the league, and there was there was also a lot of racism in the way that Michael Vick was covered. Yeah. But but these guys, and some of them are white players who have all sorts of trouble with the law. Sure, and and we're not talking about a guy who broke the law here. We're talking about a guy who nonviolently took a political position. Well, that's what's disturbing, man. Is he is the stereotype of what black men are told they have to be to be successful. Like he, he is quiet. Uh, he literally stays in at night. He doesn't party or go to the clubs. He's, he's never been in legal trouble a day in his life. He's a college graduate, a bright guy. He's in a committed relationship with an upstanding woman. I mean, I hate, I hate to even list these things, but he is everything young black men are told they will need to be to rise up any type of corporate ladder. And, um, well, except, except black. Yeah. But here's the thing. Other black men in the league, as, as you noted, have done horrific things. And I think it gets to the fact that the decision is actually extremely political. At least seven team owners in the NFL have given a million dollars or more to Donald Trump's campaign. People kind of universally agree that NFL ownership is the most conservative ownership group of any sports league in the world. You know, it's 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 also interesting, this uh, kind of mealy mouth line, well, the, the, these guys shouldn't be political. The entire framing of the NFL for many years has been overtly political in celebration of the U.S. war machine. You have the jets that are flying overhead. Ted Cruz was at a, a game this weekend celebrating with this American bald eagle that it was went the, over a it was huge the, American flag tarp. And, and it was like a bald eagle on steroids. It was the largest bald I thought when I first saw it, I was like, is that real? Like, and, and he was he was bragging because the flag took up the entire field from corner to corner. Yeah. I think they literally found the world's largest bald eagle <laughs> and the world's largest flag. And there's money being exchanged here between the military and the NFL they actually are paying for a lot of these demonstrations. Then people didn't even understand that marketing dollars are at play. But also, and it's not like, oh, we're all coming together to celebrate our country. It is overtly about celebrating the part of our country that wages wars yeah. uh, that increasingly a majority of people are against. So the politics is already drilled into the uh, the whole apparatus. It'd be one thing if we had some massive celebration of the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment, uh, sure. you know, as part of the the patriotism. But it's just one part of America that's being honored, and that is the militaristic component of this country. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and in spite of that, people aren't looking at the nuanced nature of really what's at play here. Even the fact that they brought back Hank Williams Jr., who for the first time in almost six years will be doing his Monday Night Football anthem. Well, it's Monday night and we're ready to strike. Our special forces are in full flight. We're coming by air and on the ground. Monday Night Football's taking over the town. We gotta get ready. We gotta get right. It's gonna be a battle in the NFL tonight. They literally waited until President Obama left office because he had said horrendous, racist things about President Obama. They waited until Obama left office. You mean when, when John over. Boehner played golf with President Obama? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Biden and Kasich. Yeah. Uh-huh. What, what did yeah. you not like about it? It seems to be a really pivotal moment for you. Come on. Come on. 
It'd be like Hitler playing golf with Netanyahu, okay? Okay. Not hardly. In the country this shape is in, the shape this country's in, I mean, <laughs> no. I don't so, know. yeah, I, the, I don't understand the one that, that analogy, may- actually. Well, it's well it's I'm glad there. you don't, brother, because a lot of people do. Well, you know, they're the enemy. They're the enemy. Who's the enemy? Uh, Obama. And then brought him right back to open up for Monday Night Football. And so for anybody to say, hey, Colin shouldn't be bringing politics to the field, it's already there. And I think, though, we have crossed a point where if nine months ago people were saying he shouldn't be political or other people were saying this is just a football decision, I think with comments from guys like Aaron Rodgers, but a few dozen athletes across the league, many of them who have been lifelong competitors of Colin, have all come out to say, listen, cut the crap. This is just about them not liking his politics and not liking the stand that he took. And that's why I thought a boycott was necessary. Like, that's not okay. It's not okay for a place like this to boot a man in the prime of his life because he took a peaceful stand against something that millions of us believe we should all be taking a stand against. And that's police brutality. It's not a stand against police but a stand against police brutality, it's a stand against injustice. Huge story about the NFL and and people not standing for the anthem. Uh, Donald Trump's very angry. He thinks people should be fired. He started a firestorm about that uh, on Friday night that has raged throughout the weekend. Now, would you like to know the real story of how uh, we wound up having people stand for the national anthem uh, in the NFL in the first place? Now, this story does not go back a very long time in history. It's not like the players were standing for the national anthem throughout. Did you know that? It's it's not like, oh, the NFL, that's always what happens. The players come out, we do the national anthem, they stand, and that's, that is an American tradition. No, it started very recently. We go to law news here that explains the story. Before 2009, football players standing for the national anthem wasn't even a thing. The team stayed in the locker room until after and the home of the brave, of course, until the anthem was over, and then ran onto the field. So what the Steelers did this weekend, and eventually the Seahawks and the Titans, was what every team did pre-2009. So this is a new thing. So all that talk of like, oh, this is tradition in America, and if you respect America, then you, this is when you come out of the locker room, and this is how you stand, and this is how you, where you put your hands. Yeah, I know, America is all about dictating how people should stand, and what body motions they should have, and, and where they should be, etc. So it turns out it's all a myth. So why did it start uh, later anyway? Mm, this is a really interesting part. Turns out that from 2011 to 2014, the Department of Defense spent $5.4 million in contracts with 14 NFL teams for flag ceremonies. The National Guard got in on the action too and gave $6.7 million to the NFL for the same kind of thing from 2013 to 2015. This is what is otherwise known as paid propaganda. Now. Look, they, they, I'm sure, had good intentions when they did it. Their intention is, well, we'd like more people to sign up for the National Guard, from the Department of Defense. Uh, we need more recruits to volunteer army. 
So let's pay some for some marketing if you want to take a positive spin on it, propaganda if you want to take a negative spin on it, and make it a new tradition that we all salute the flag and do the national anthem and make sure the players are on the field and and everybody's paying heed to our soldiers. And then if you remember, of course, when Kaepernick took a knee, it had nothing to do with the military. He said it was because of the racial injustice that the police, unfortunately, were doing throughout the country. But people immediately spun it as, "Oh, you must hate the veterans, you might must hate the military. Well, all this started in the first place because the military apparently was paying for this propaganda. And yes, I do take a negative spin on it because this is not what we should spend taxpayer dollars for. If you're patriotic, wonderful, but I don't want the Defense Department spending our dollars to try to make other people patriotic so they sign up for wars and 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 serve the Pentagon's purposes. So more details on this. Um, the Senate Oversight Committee said, unfortunately, and they investigated this, they said, unfortunately, contrary to the public statements made by the Department of Defense and the NFL, the majority of the contracts, 72 of the 122 contracts we analyze, clearly show that the Department of Defense paid for patriotic tributes at professional football, baseball, basketball, hockey, and soccer games. These paid tributes included an on the field color guard, enlistment and reenlistment ceremonies, performances of the national anthem, full field flag details, ceremonial first pitches, and puck drops. So look, the national anthem happened in the games before, but like we said, the players were in the locker room at the time. You would, of course, have a first pitch and you drop the puck anyway, but they wrapped all of it in the flag. It was all an effort to recruit more people to sign up for the military. So this was propaganda from the beginning and had nothing to do with American tradition. In fact, it's not just me saying that. Back in 2015, Republican Senator John McCain called this, quote, paid patriotism. And he went on to say that the charades conducted not out of a sense of patriotism, but rather done for profit in the form of millions in taxpayer dollars going from the Department of Defense to wealthy pro sports franchises. And he came out strongly against it. And that is how all of this began in the first place. Know the reality, know the truth. And that right there is what this is actually about. When work and life get busy, the last thing you want to think about is planning meals, buying ingredients, and making sure whatever you eat is relatively healthy. So you should do what I have done and start outsourcing that work to HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. And HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly, including the Classic Plan, which comes with a wide variety of meat, fish, and seasonal produce, the Veggie Plan, vegetarian recipes with plant-based proteins, and the Family Plan, quick and easy meals the whole family will love. And what I found best about HelloFresh is that I never end up spending all night in the kitchen because recipes only take around 30 minutes. They have lots of one-pot recipes for seriously speedy cooking and minimal cleanup, and each week there's a 20-minute meal on the classic menu for when you really don't have time for more than that. Meals like lobster ravioli and shrimp with tomatoes and tarragon cream sauce are great, especially when I don't have to come up with them, and 
only what I need is sent right to my door, and I think you might like it too. So for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code BESTOFLEFT30. That's HelloFresh.com and enter promo code BESTOFLEFT30 for $30 off your first week. I did write something about the NFL a couple weeks ago um, and about Kaepernick and just about the fact that, you know, I I get why people are protesting and making a big deal out of his, you know, unemployment and and the reaction to his his protest. But with all of the fuck shit that the NFL (laughs) has going on. This is like this isn't even like a tip of iceberg. This is like a pelican (laughs) standing on an iceberg. This is. There's so much more that is boycott worthy. Oh, yes. Like the, you know, the whole concussion thing. The fact that they lied to, you know, the public and the players for for years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all, you know, so many ex-players coming up with a CTE and Mm -hmm. just damaged and destroyed bodies. And their whole, like, hypocrisy and completely arbitrary stances on domestic violence yeah um the you know i i remember reading something a couple years ago where you know they make this big stink with breast cancer awareness and they have the pink helmets and the pink socks and the pink uniforms all the players and only like eight percent of the proceeds from that stuff actually went to breast cancer research wow so Mm -hmm. there are i mean and you know, the NFL is a corporation and, you know, if you a nonprofit into, corporation yeah, until recently, and if you dig in the guts of any of most corporations, you're going to find, you know, stuff that, you know, it, it's the reason why some people who go to a, a meat packing plant don't eat meat. It's like, uh, I don't, yeah. don't want to see how the shit is made. But, um, but yeah, Kaepernick's this, this, this story is just one of many that, yeah. you know, if you, if you want to boycott the NFL, then you could just you could just like this be <laughs> blindfolded and just throw something at a dartboard and just pick yeah. pick a reason. Uh, non guaranteed contracts. All right, yeah. that's oh, the yeah. boycott. And that, yeah. and that, that's another thing. It's the most dangerous out of the major professional sports. Out of the four major professional sports, is by far the most dangerous. Has the lowest, um, I guess, average career, and, and they're the only ones without guaranteed contracts. Yeah, right. So, which again. means for people listening who are because we don't have a ton of sports fans, it just means that like. They, you, they can sign you to a $300 billion contract, mm-hmm. and then on the first day, if you don't perform the way they want you, they cut you, and you get none of it. You mm-hmm. just get what you've already been paid for. You don't get the rest. They don't fulfill yeah. it. And, yeah. and it's also the most violent of all the major sports, so your careers are shorter, and you get longer-lasting injuries. So it really begs the question, why do people play? And secondly, uh, maybe this was a good thing uh, for Colin Kaepernick because he'll be with us longer. Oh, that Hey, that's that's a good way of looking at it. You know, it's, that's, um, that's, yeah. you know, it, you can't, you, you can't really criticize the NFL for not caring about black people when they've shown that they don't care about people <laughs> <laughs> and just, just money like yeah. that, you know, so you got to care about people first before you even start thinking about like black people. There, there are black, pe- there are black people.
For today's classic interview, very relevant. My interview from two years ago to the day with Steve Almond, who argues that football, the sport that he loved for so long, is immoral and we shouldn't watch it. And since this interview, we've of course learned after the death of former New England Patriots player Aaron Hernandez that even though he was quite young and relatively early in his career, he was suffering from severe CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, brain injury. And we've had this entire blow up regarding kneeling during national anthem. So I think that there is no better time to go back to my interview with Steve Almond from October 5th of two years ago, 2015. Let's check it out. I'm joined today by Steve Almond, author of Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto, which is just out in paperback. The book is super interesting, Steve, and you're uh, an admitted football fan who is sort of trying to rid yourself of football. And you have a number of ethical concerns around the game, which we'll get to. And, you know, in, in preparing for this interview, I was reminded of an interview I did with the nation's Dave Zirin around the last World Cup, where he presented all sorts of very strong indictments of FIFA and of World Cups more broadly but still said he doesn't think it's unethical or immoral to watch because you enjoy the game of soccer, but that you should be simultaneously advocating for change. Now, when it comes to football for you, you you feel that that is not an OK solution. In other words, you really need to rid yourself of football, as you say. Well, I I think that's a the book is trying to present the football for what it really is the biggest central narrative in american culture the most popular sport the most profitable sport the largest activity or narrative that we all have in common i think it's bigger than religion at this point it's bigger than the bonds of family in many cases and i'm really interested in what it means both as a phenomenally interesting game uh narrative and also maybe even as a, almost like a spiritual thing for, for a lot of people, but also what the dark side of it is. So the book isn't trying to say you should do this or you should do that, but you should know exactly what it is you're sponsoring when you sit down to watch a game. And I think that's the place where I do depart from somebody like Dave Zirin, although I, I really appreciate how intelligently he writes about sports and how morally grounded he is as a commentator. I think it's very basic. Roger Goodell and the folks who run the big college football programs and the whole football industrial complex, they don't care whether you're guilt stricken. They don't care whether you um, are sort of cheering with a big foam rubber hand in one hand and maybe with a fist advocating with the other because they're really keeping score in a very basic way. Are you a sponsor? Are you tuning in? Are you contributing to the revenues of big football? And the answer is yes. If you're a fan, that's what you're doing. But that's my answer. There are a lot of people who are going to read the book and say, well, I might cut back on my consumption or I might become more active and involved when it comes to questioning how my tax dollars are spent at the level of high school or pro or college football. So it's not trying to advocate any one solution like boycott football. It's much more, hey, you should think about what everything that football is, because it's extraordinarily complicated and it's woven through the fabric of almost everything we do in America at this point. Give us the sort of bullet points of what these areas of concern are. And then, you know, I have some that I'm going to want to dive into. The ones sure. that to me strike me are, uh, of course, the, this pervasive 
brain injury disaster and systematic cover up that has been exposed several times now. Right. Uh, and and how that impacts how we see college football and even high school football, really. Right. Uh, the corporatism. No question about that. The greed, which some write off as sort of billionaires versus millionaires, which is not at all the reality, as Dave Zirin has exposed when we look at owners versus players. What else is there? Well, I think there are things that are a little bit squishier and more subtle. But, um, you know, the major thing is that you have to accept that you're watching a form of entertainment in which you incur none of the risk and in which up to a third of the pro players are going to get brain damage. That's the big one that for me, having seen my mom suffer a cognitive collapse, basically, I just, just kind of turned my stomach. But beyond that and beyond the sort of the greed that's just sort of built into American capitalist culture are issues that have to do with the way that masculinity is defined and femininity, the way that sort of gender and orientation work. And I think the main thing that really troubled me, the more I thought about two things, really, the way in which football has become inextricably linked to the educational process in this country at the high school and and college level, that just makes no sense to me that a game that, that essentially segregates people and values them purely for their physical worth and that also clearly now the research indicates has deleterious effects on people's brain function somehow are a huge part of our educational system and the tax dollars that are spent on it and the other thing is that it really sanitizes and normalizes violence i think in this way it's symptomatic of american culture but the thing about football that just makes it distinct from something like rugby or especially boxing is we really come to believe as when we watch football, we, we allow a certain kind of magical thinking to infect us. We honestly think that a 280 pound player who comes up against another 300 pound player, uh, you know, with 70 G forces, maybe a hundred times a game, isn't going to be permanently damaged and maybe even brain damaged by that contact. We allow ourselves to believe that it's not real violence. And I think that abstracting of what real violence is and its real human toll is the same mentality that's in operation when, for instance, we send soldiers overseas and they suffer whatever they suffer. And then when they come back to the United States, we just aren't particularly interested in their suffering. Do you think that, uh, well, let me frame it a different way. There's many people I know who, if I said to them, you know, uh, football really has this inherent tolerance for what are debilitating brain injuries to a significant percentage of the players. Football really has this tolerance for this total corporatism. Football tolerates even arguably homophobia and even racism in some cases, blah, blah, blah. And they would look at me and with a totally straight face, they would say, David, uh, I know what you're saying, but I just like watching the game. I don't believe any of those things. And watching the game isn't going to change my opinion. Is that a valid defense in your mind or are you legitimizing those problems merely by watching? Um, I I don't know that you're legitimizing them. I think you're consuming and really in that way, kind of taking part in a game that has certain values that that we really would never condone, condone outside the realm of football. That's what's so amazing about football. It's such a remarkable spectacle. It's so thrilling. And our attachment to it is so deep that we essentially throw whatever moral qualms we might have out as citizens, as parents, you know, as um, maybe even as uh, people of faith, those go out the window. You know, if you think about how Jesus would regard the Jesus I'm talking about, uh, sort of of the Sermon on the Mount, who was turn the other cheek, avoid violence. Right. Not the evangelical right wing Jesus. Well, right. The guy who was 
you know, turning over the, the, the money changers tables, who was a radical who believed in the gospel of love as a revolutionary force, yeah. that Jesus would look at football and say, oh, I recognize that. The, the nearest cognate I have is the spectacles that the Romans throw, these gladiatorial combats where there's clear bloodlust, there's a clear effort to distract the people from incompetent uh, venal leadership and from a kind of injustice that I am trying to, my whole mission is to put across that we've got to be more merciful and kind and less violent towards one another. But there, you know, a lot of people would say they believe in what Jesus said on the Mount. And then they would, you know, watch a football game. And when uh, a running back scores a touchdown by knocking the linebacker senseless and says, thank God, thank God, I'm glad, you know, <laughs> I believe in God. And I'm glad he was watching over the gridiron. They right. would see no sense of cognitive dissonance. But in this sense, David, it's really um, it's more typical of an American human, but especially an American mindset. That is, we love certain pleasures in this culture, but we don't like interrogating those pleasures morally. It's very unpleasant. We all love bacon, or most of us do, but we certainly have no interest in going to the slaughterhouse. What my book is attempting to do is to say, look, I loved football for 40 years as a, as a, as a sport and as a spectacle. It's ecstatic and beautiful. It's the body at play. It's greatness and poise and discipline and teamwork and all these virtues, many of them manly, but still virtues that are nothing but laudable. And also, while you're consuming all that, there's also this other stuff. And this other stuff is really, you're a part of this larger system that fosters that. You, you talk about homophobia. It's like maybe the NFL is homophobic. It's not a maybe. When you have a collective freakout at the idea that a single gay employee is going to enter your workforce, <laughs> right. that's just, when you look at any other workplace, we would never we would never accept that maybe the catholic church or you know an evangelical business but we would never accept that in most other realms of our life just like we would never accept a workplace where the ownership says yeah 30% of the employees are going to get long term cognitive ailments but what are you going to do it's just they incur the risk they know what they're doing you know we don't watch coal miners get black lung right um but we could all recognize that it was a real problem and they, the workplace needed to change we are actually watching the coal miners get black lung. That's what we're doing every Sunday. We're watching guys who are getting brain damage, and we're seeing some of them take their own lives or sort of suffer in silence years later. And we're saying collectively and individually, I'm okay with that. As always, I want to remind you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you. In particular, listeners like David R. and Matthew R. No relation, as far as I know. Uh, both of whom went above and beyond. They signed up as professional protester-level members. So thanks so much to them for their support and to all other members and donors who help keep this show going. Members get access, as I always say, to a special members podcast feed that you can subscribe to, just like any other podcast, which includes 
includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content. And I, I say that a lot, but I just heard from a friend recently who has been promising for years to sign up as a member, uh, who finally got around to doing it and explained that what made her finally take the plunge was my explanation recently of how the membership content can be subscribed to like a normal podcast and listen to just the way you listen to any podcast. And that's been the case for years. And I feel like I've been saying that for years. And yet somehow this personal friend of mine, who I have had multiple conversations with in person about the show and all the membership stuff, still managed to not quite have it stick in her head how easy it is to get the bonus content. You know, she thought that she'd have to go to some special place and download it separately or listen to it on a computer or something like that. So I figured if she, of all people, was still confused by that, then I must not have been doing a good enough job explaining all of this, and I should have started focusing on this point a long time ago. So again, when you sign up as a member on Patreon, you will immediately receive information about subscribing to a brand new podcast feed that you can use just like any other podcast in any podcast player you like. And once you subscribe to it, it will act just like any podcast you listen to. The difference is that the show, Best of Left, will no longer have ads in it. Nice. And you'll automatically receive bonus episodes that Amanda and I record at least twice a month. So now that you know, without a doubt, how easy and beneficial it is to sign up as a member and access all of that bonus content automatically, as easy as listening to a podcast, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started. And thanks in advance for your support. A lot of the debate around these NFL players kneeling seems to occur in a historical vacuum. The history of athletes and protest is seldom mentioned. Um, and what's worse, the reason why Colin Kaepernick and his comrades began protesting during the national anthem has been drowned out in the shouting. Last week, I saw an image circulating online that showed Martin Luther King Jr. with his hand over his heart in respect for the American flag. It was accompanied by a message from a Trump supporter saying MLK didn't take the knee in protest of the flag or anthem. He took the knee in prayer to God. That was followed by the hashtag boycott NFL. In fact, a lot of people on the right seem to love using King to defend all sorts of things, to defend guns. Would, would liberals have want, you know, King to not have been able to have a gun after his house was firebombed? They falsely claim that Martin Luther King was a member of the Republican Party. Martin Luther King has become a malleable symbol for rampant deployment by people trying to tell protesters and black people today to shut up. One of the biggest problems with all of this is that it's based on complete fiction and total ignorance of who Martin Luther King Jr. actually was and what he actually believed. It's also particularly vile when used to try to suppress dissent against police killings. The same thing that happens a lot with King also happens all the time with Rosa Parks. It happens with the civil rights movement in general. Caricatures have been created after being sanitized, historically revised, and made palatable for mass consumption and abuse by crass politicians. An important and groundbreaking new book coming out in January digs deep into this manufactured mythology surrounding Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and other figures and movements, and it provides a nuanced portrait of the truth. It's called A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. 
Its author is Jean Theo Harris. She's a professor of political science at Brooklyn College in New York. Jean Theo Harris, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Your overall view of how key historical figures or moments in the civil rights movement are kind of used or inaccurately portrayed in our current discourse, either by politicians or by ordinary people having arguments online? I mean, I think what we've seen, and this has happened over the past number of decades, and I would argue since really Reagan changes his position and signs the King holiday, is the kind of creation of a national fable of the civil rights movement. And so now the civil rights movement is used to make Americans feel good about themselves, you know, from 50th anniversary commemorations of the March on Washington to the Selma to Montgomery March, from the dedication of King's statue on the mall, from the statue of Rosa Parks in Statuary Hall. All of these events have become places where we now celebrate the United States, where we feel so good about the progress we've made. And I think in the process these kind of dangerous ideas about what the civil rights movement was, what it entailed, how it went forth, have become cemented. And so as you're implying, politicians, citizens constantly invoke the civil rights movement in the present to justify certain kinds of positions, to chastise contemporary movements, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's Colin Kaepernick's stand that is now turned into a much broader stand by athletes. We're constantly being bombarded with this is not what King would do, you know, be like King, be like Parks, that strip and utterly distort what the civil rights movement was and what people like King and Parks actually did and stood for. Right. And we interviewed Tavis Smiley, who wrote an excellent book about the last year of King's life, where King was basically disinvited to everything. He was no longer embraced by the mainstream of the civil rights movement, and he was increasingly denouncing U.S. imperialism, talking about how my own government is the greatest purveyor of violence on earth. It's the one King quote that I would love to see at an NFL game when they have all the rockets and the warcraft flying over it. Let's put that Martin Luther King quote up about the U.S. government being the greatest purveyor of violence on earth. Absolutely. But I mean, I think we also need to remember that even the King at the high watermark of 1963 is not popular. So in Gallup poll the week before the March on Washington, two-thirds of Americans don't support the March on Washington. You have congressmen denouncing it as un-American. And in the wake of the March on Washington, the FBI and the Kennedys, this is the moment when you see the escalation of surveillance of Martin Luther King to kind of wall-to-wall surveillance of him. They call him a demagogue, the most dangerous. Even in this moment, right, we're not even at 67 King with the public speech against the war in Vietnam. We are at King and the March on Washington, and that King is seen as dangerous, and that King is surveilled Right? It's not just 67 and 68 King. watches football knows that Kaepernick should at least be a second string quarterback. He's not good enough to be a third string quarterback on any team, 
What an absolute joke. So he tried and tried to do it the right way and they wouldn't let him back in the league. So now Kaepernick is forced to take this next action, which I actually think could be fantastic. So as Think Progress reports here, on Sunday, former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick filed a grievance alleging that the NFL owners are colluding to keep him unemployed during the 2017 season. Now, they'll have to prove that in court. Like I said, anybody who watches football in America knows that that's absolutely true. No one in their right mind would doubt that. No, he's the 97th best quarterback in America, preposterous. Okay, anyway, criminal defense attorney Mark Garagos, Kaepernick's lawyer, confirmed the news in a statement later on Sunday. Garagos said the suit was only filed after, quote, after pursuing every possible avenue with all NFL teams and their executives. Kaepernick is absolutely right to fight back with every means he's got. I hope he takes the league for so much money, he could buy a team. Anyway, this lawsuit could literally be a game changer, as Lindsey Gibbs explains. Not just for Kaepernick, but for the labor rights of all NFL players. He's hoping to trigger termination of the current collective bargaining agreement, which was signed in 2011 and is set to expire in 2021. By proving that the NFL at large conspired to keep him out of the league. So let's talk about the consequences of that. If Kaepernick is successful in his suit, it would force NFL owners to back to the table in 2018. And that's of course three years earlier than they were planning and give the NFL players a more powerful bargaining position than they've had in recent memory. Um, look, the NFL has all sorts of special rules that apply to it. Doesn't have to follow the regular rules on monopolies, they get billions of dollars in tax breaks in all their different cities that they're in and the list goes on and on. But you know, it's one thing that to allow that. It's another thing when they collude and abuse their power right in front of everyone where anybody can see it. So if they're going to do that, yeah, of course you should take down the collective bargaining agreement and of course the players should have more leverage. They're the ones out there literally getting brain damage to provide this entertainment for everyone and to make billions of dollars for the owners. So it would be wonderfully appropriate if their endless greed, which is what partly led them to banning Kaepernick in the first place, cost them billions of dollars in money. That would be wonderful. As again, Gibbs explains in Think Progress, if he can provide clear and convincing evidence, one act of collusion against one player would be enough to terminate the collective bargaining agreement. And did any of this work anyway? Like they punished the hell out of Kaepernick, cost him millions of dollars and won't let him back in the league and play the game that he loves. So are is nobody taking a knee anymore? Have they gotten the message that they better bow their head and only provide entertainment and never have an opinion of their own, never exercise their freedom of speech like any other American? No, it hasn't worked. In in reality, as you all know, hundreds of other NFL players have taken a knee or raised a fist in solidarity with the movement in the years since, as have hundreds upon hundreds of grade school, high school, and college students around the country. And in fact, a German soccer team just did it in unity with African American players here in the US, which was a wonderful moment of saying we're with you. Uh, both in Germany and in the US, we don't want systemic abuse of minorities and they are fighting back now. What started with Kaepernick on week one and spread to two other players um, uh, on week two last year 
has spread to 30 San Francisco 49ers players and, and thousands of more across the world now. So you can't keep him down, you can't keep his ideas down. He's right about this and we need to fix our system. We need to fix police training in this country and make it better for all of our communities, all the citizens of America. Kaepernick is an absolute American hero for doing that. And if he takes down the collective bargaining agreement and costs the greedy NFL owners billions of dollars, then wonderful. Then he'll be a double hero. Go get him, Kaepernick. Um, he's doing more outside the league than other quarterbacks are doing inside the league. I was speaking to a legend of the black freedom struggle of the 1960s on the phone last week. No names, although I tell this story with their permission. This individual was very upset about the rumors, amplified by the White House as if divine truth, that the NFL would be changing their rules to force players to stand at attention, hand on their hearts, during the national anthem. And just so folks know that as of this broadcast, that is not the case, and Roger Goodell has stated that the rules will not be changing. So this person could not stand the thought of these athletes being humbled by a sport that potentially takes away so much from them, their health, their minds, and now seems also to be on the hunt for their dignity. This person implored me to speak to any NFL players that I might know and say to them, if you accept the stripping of your rights like this, it will set the black community back a century, end quote. Look, this is not a message I'll be passing on, and not only because of how comically ridiculous it would sound coming out of my mouth. Like, you don't want to hear me saying, you're going to set the black community back a century. That would be kind of silly. But while I am deeply sympathetic to what this person and all of us have invested in this rebellion of NFL players, I would argue that it is a misread of how much power these athletes actually have and also where change comes from to think that everything is riding on their shoulders. If people think that NFL players are going to lead a new civil rights movement or even be the substitute for the building of such a movement, then we are setting ourselves up for a profound level of disappointment. First, there is the social reality of the players themselves. Their work situation is almost a caricature of precarious labor. It's not just that the typical career lasts only three seasons or the fact that they don't have guaranteed contracts or can be cut at any time or even blackballed like Colin Kaepernick if they dare stand for something other than the selling of their sport. It's that they play a uniquely violent game where any play can be their last. That some of these players face all of these obstacles and are still pushing forward in the face of a bullying president and the death threats issued by his minions is living proof of their courage. It is inspiring at a time when inspiration is in short supply. That we are following this story so desperately is also a testament to how thirsty so many of us are for heroes in this era of orange tyranny. But to think that NFL players will lead a resistance in a vacuum is a recipe for regret. 
If anything, it is evidence as if more was needed of the terrible way that we are mistaught history in this country, from grade school to the History Channel. We are fed this idea that change happens because of the actions of great men, and occasionally women, each one a modern-day Moses, leading an acquiescent mass to a promised land. This reading of the past conditions us to be passive in the face of injustice, constantly waiting for a superhero savior. This is, if anything, even truer in the film and book documentations of great athletes who stood at the intersection of sports and politics. The tendency of sports histories is to decontextualize athletes and create icons out of human beings. It's an approach that's left us with a skewed view where people like Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos weren't a product of the 1960s as much as a creator of them. We would be wise to remember the words of Dr. Harry Edwards, who was at the heart of those struggles, and then wrote, quote, It was inevitable that this revolt of the black athletes should develop, with struggles being waged by black people in the areas of education, housing, employment, and many others. It was only a matter of time before Afro-American athletes shed their fantasies and delusions and asserted their manhood and faced the facts of their existence. The roots spring from the same seed that produced the sit-ins, the freedom rides, and the rebellions in Watts, Detroit, and Newark, end quote. Similarly, Billie Jean King in Title IX legislation never sees the light of day without the women's liberation movement. Yes, Billie Jean King shaped that movement, but the movement itself, as she herself says, was a precondition to her emergence. Today, these NFL players are not fighting because they are poring over statistics that show police shootings are up in 2017, or because they woke up one day and decided that silence was not an option. They exist because of the Black Lives Matter movement. They exist because of the horrors broadly felt when video of police shooting the unarmed, like Terrence Crutcher and Walter Scott, or the legally armed, like Philando Castile, hit social media. The heroic actions of NFL players raise awareness about an issue that the current president refuses to discuss. But while amplifying the movement is critical, it's not a substitute for a movement in and of itself. The most far-reaching grassroots response to these players has been the sight of young athletes taking a knee, from cheerleaders to soccer players, from high school football players willing to get kicked off their team to German soccer stars. It's remarkable to see, but it's also not enough. If players are going to keep up the fight, it will only be because we are doing the hard work of building anti-racist movements in the streets. This is one instance where watching pro athletes absolutely cannot afford to be a spectator sport. Trump's beef with the NFL has left a lot of people with a lot of questions. But the question that has come up for me once again is, when is the right time for black people to protest? Everyone has a different answer. Uh, for me, it's uh, right before lunch, because <laughs> that's when I'm hangry, right? <laughs> and after lunch, I get the itis. I'm not effective. Uh, 
But if you want to know when black people should protest, you've got to go right to the source. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. I think what the president is saying is that the owner should have a rule that players should have to stand in respect for the national anthem. This isn't about Democrats. It's not about Republicans. It's not about race. It's not about free speech. They can do free speech on their own time. Is it not about their First Amendment rights? No, it's not. They, they have the right to have their First Amendment off the field. It's, uh, it, it's a little weird getting free speech advice from a guy who doesn't speak freely. <laughs> My words are trapped in a prison of teeth. <laughs> but okay, fine. I hear what Mnuchin is saying. He's not against the players protesting. He just doesn't like it when they do it on the field. You know, when everyone's watching. Yeah, do it somewhere else. Can you imagine Mnuchin giving that advice to Rosa Parks? He would just be like, hey, Rosa, why are you protesting on the bus, huh? People have places to be. Take the bus to your house, sit down on your couch, and protest from home. Boom, racism solved. It's solved. And you know what? And you know what? So uh, the, the Trump administration is okay with protesting, right? They're okay as long as uh, it's on your own time. Unless you're ESPN commentator Jamel Hill, criticizing the president on your private Twitter feed, then that's a fireable offense too, right? Uh, although I do understand where Trump is coming from because Twitter is his workplace, so I, it's, a, it's a different thing. <laughs> but I get it, I get it. You, you do it not in public. Uh, here's another example over the weekend. Stevie Wonder took a knee on his own time in his own show. And even then, even then, a former Republican congressman tweeted, Stevie Wonder takes a knee for the anthem during a concert. Another ungrateful black multimillionaire. Ungrateful to whom? I'm fascinated by that concept. People always say, ungrateful to whom? This idea that black people should be grateful is some sneaky ass racism. Yeah, because when a white billionaire spends a year screaming that America is a disaster, he's in touch with the country. But when a black man kneels quietly, he should be grateful for the successes America has allowed him to have? How is that ungrateful? I don't understand. You know what would be ungrateful? What would be ungrateful is if Stevie Wonder got his sight back and then started complaining about colors. That would be ungrateful. (laughs) If he was like, hey man, If he was just like, hey man, what the f is up with pink? That's a garbage ass color. Be like, all right, Stevie, you're being ungrateful, Stevie. You're being ungrateful. Yeah, it it, it almost feels like white people earn the money, but black people are given it. They play a game for a living. They make millions of dollars. They're ungrateful millennial millionaires who won't stand for their own anthem. I wish some of these players who get on one knee during the national anthem would get on both knees and thank God they live in the United States of America. Where they're not only free to earn millions of dollars every year, but they're also free from the worry of being shot in the head for taking a knee like they would be if they were in North Korea. Okay, wait, wait. You, you think black Americans are free from the worry of being shot by agents of the state? That's the whole thing that they're protesting in the first place. That's exactly what they're protesting. In fact, in fact, if black Americans went to North Korea, they wouldn't get shot just for being black. Just ask Ambassador Dennis Rodman. It wouldn't happen. So, so again, When is the right time to protest? Well, according to Trump's press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, it's not the when that's a problem, it's the how that black people are getting wrong. 
I think if this is the debate is really for them about police brutality, they should probably protest the officers on the field that are protecting them instead of the American flag. Oh, I see. Oh, don't protest the flag. Protest the police officers that are on the field. So if you do that, then no one will complain. Can you just clarify that? Were you saying that are you encouraging NFL players to protest police? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I was kind of pointing out the hypocrisy. Oh, wait, you were just being sarcastic. Well, that's a great use of the White House. Nicely done, nicely done. Yeah, but you see, you still haven't told us the right way for black people to protest. Uh, I mean, we know it's wrong to do it in the streets. It's wrong to do it in the tweets. You cannot do it on the field. You cannot do it if you've kneeled. And don't do it if you're rich. You ungrateful son of a bitch. Because there's one thing that's a fact. You cannot protest if you're black. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, laying out the widespread response to Trump's attacks on protesting NFL players. Intercepted spoke with Sean King about the origins and intentions of Kaepernick's protest. The Young Turks explained how the Pentagon paid for the political propaganda we're all now debating over. Politically Reactive went past the protests and looked deeper at some of the troubling aspects of the NFL. Likewise, The David Pakman Show dug into their archives for a classic interview making the argument to boycott the NFL two years ago. The Young Turks gave a recent update on Kaepernick's fight with the NFL that has resulted in a lawsuit being filed claiming collusion against him. On Edge of Sports Radio, Dave Zirin gave a few of his choice words on the role that the larger protest movements have played in making the high-visibility NFL protests possible. And finally, we just heard The Daily Show ask and answer the question, when is the right time for black people to protest? You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. This is Annie from Alabama. I'm calling back because um, my my last recording didn't quite go through so well. I must have been driving through a bad area. I also listen to your show to and from work. Um, my thing about guns is I fall, you know, I'm, I'm very much hard left politically, but this is the one area that I deviate from the traditional left of center politics. Uh, I have a gun myself. I um, started shooting guns when I was six. I have never stopped. When I was 12, I got a little pink rifle and I started shooting competitively in skeet competitions and I did pretty well. It was super fun. Um, I also uh, have a semi-automatic handgun that I keep in my car because I do work out of my vehicle. I drive places all day long. Sometimes I'm out late at night. Sometimes I'm in unsafe locations. And it just, it, it helps me uh, mentally to know that uh, I do have a gun with me for personal protection purposes. I'm also queer and disabled and I'm dating a black woman. And there are plenty of people down here in Southern Alabama that hate my guts. And they are armed to the teeth. And it really makes me feel uncomfortable knowing that people who want me dead are armed and I'm not. 
so I arm myself. I also have privilege in the sense that I'm a white person. If I were pulled over by the police for a broken taillight and they asked me if I had a gun on my person and I said yes, I would not instantly be shot dead because I look very unassuming. I am a, you know, I'm a relatively attractive, tiny uh, white woman. You know, they, they would not see me as a threat. Also, uh, I don't like the fact that most leftists have no idea about anything about guns. I listen to some other lefty politi politics podcasts, and when they're speaking about guns, it just it grates on me because they're speaking from a place of ignorance. They don't know anything about guns. These people were completely taken by surprise when they learned about bump stocks and that you could, in fact take a semi-automatic weapon and turn it into what was pretty much a machine gun. They didn't know that was possible, not much less legal. I think that is a very dangerous thing, a da very dangerous thing to be ignorant of. Even if you don't want to engage in gun culture and own a gun, you gotta know a little bit about them just because of the country that we're living in. Also, um, just on a larger political level, there are lots of times when revolution or political change has only happened because of the disenfranchised being armed. And the one that's coming to mind specifically are the Black Panthers. They were armed, they had guns, and the only reason that they were as successful as they were is because they were armed. Because they scared people. They shook up the um, the status quo. I shouldn't say the only reason they were successful, but this is a large part, part of why they were successful. When they would see a police officer pull over a black person, they'd pull up right behind them and they'd sit there and just watch. And the cop knew that they were armed. And that knowledge is what let them be so successful in that particular avenue. I just think the fact that we have the... Um, the white conservatives have all the guns and then the rest of us don't, you know, if, uh, you know, if, you know, shit hits the fan, I want the guns, not them. Um, and I know a lot of time, a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this. I'd be happy to take, uh, take other opinions and take criticism on this. Um, and I'd like to hear some other thoughts on it that disagree with me. Thank you so much, Jay. Hi, Jay. This is Keith from New Hampshire. I was just calling to beef up your voicemail since you were asking for that. And uh, something I wanted to talk about was the fact that very often we hear people refer to someone who doesn't agree with us as the, quote, other side. I actually like to spend a lot of time finding where I have things in common with people who may disagree with me on party affiliation, or this, that, or the other argument. Um, I find this more constructive because it allows us to have a dialogue and it really opens more doors than it closes. I know that when you were talking about gun control, you weren't putting it into very binary terms and that you didn't mean to isolate anyone, but it was just something that came to mind because when I hear someone talk about something like climate change, for example, 
Um, I don't think that we're actually on different sides. I think most people agree that climate change is real, is caused by human activity. And when people go on TV and they present two sides or the other side of this argument, they're really not doing justice to the science or the polls that show that most people agree on this issue. And so along the lines of Jefferson's words about um, needing civilized society to remain under the regimen of barbarous ancestors, we need to think about what we do to evolve our positions and our language and our acceptance of each other. And I think that that will push us forward in times that are obviously very dire. So keep up the great work. Love all you do. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, my own thoughts on today's topic, like many of you progressive political junkies out there, I don't follow sports and I really couldn't care less about them on a personal level. Uh, but this wasn't always the case. I actually grew up avidly watching sports, probably about as much, if not more, than any average American kid. And then around junior high or so, I, I realized, and I don't know if this realization came all at once or if it dawned on me slowly, that I was just wasting huge amounts of time watching sports and that the outcomes of all of those games had literally zero measurable impact on my life. So after that, for a long time, I went pretty hard in the other direction. You know, I was poo-pooing sports in general and really holding the opinion that they weren't just a waste of time for me, but that they were a waste of time for everyone. And so, you know, years go by and eventually I get into politics and that really cements it even more. You know, I began to lament, as many do, the fact that you know, why can't we get people to be as passionate about politics, something that really does impact everyone a great deal, the way so many are passionate about sports? Eventually, though, I heard an interview or two or several, probably, with Dave Zirin, who is now the host of his own show, Edge of Sports, which we've heard a bit from today. And, and he was talking at the time, you know, this is 10 years ago. He's talking about his specialty, you know, his uh, his focus is the intersection of sports and politics. And so that sort of piqued my interest uh, just to realize that there were political elements to sports. I just didn't know it at the time. And his big focus back then was on public money that goes into building stadiums that end up being owned by private interests. It's just another one of those classic examples of privatizing the gains and socializing the losses. And, and then a bit later, I heard probably a handful of commentaries by people like Tom Hartman, who likes to talk about the way sports are important to humans almost on an evolutionary level. You know, that sports, especially violent ones, are very analogous to war. And, and you know, we just love to have that, you know, we have that deep craving for the in-group, out-group dynamic. We, you know, we want to be part of a community pitched in battle against another, you know. And so 
slowly, <laughs> I, I've been dragged, uh, and I finally came around, and I'm resigned to the fact that sports are important to society, even though I still can't muster any interest in following them myself. And I, I, I've come to understand that a big chunk of what I've been missing out on in the human experience for not having that kind of built-in community, to like to literally commune with an, a group of people over a shared interest. And, uh, and you know, similarly, I, I have the same problem as a result of not belonging to a religion, you know? So I, I miss out on that automatic community. So I, I actually think I get it, at least in a way. I get the innate human desire to be part of a group, and I understand on a fairly deep level what it feels like to be a social creature and not have a community to plug into— and so it's for that reason that I never hassle people about being sports fans anymore. Like, I, I get it. I've evolved. I understand why people are so passionate about sports. And, and this, you know, I got thinking about this today uh, after hearing Annie's voicemail, the, the first one we heard, because, you know, she was lamenting the ignorance of liberals who talk about guns. And guns, like sports, are a very important social phenomenon in our country. So we would be wise to learn more about them if we care to understand the world around us. And, and, you know, that doesn't mean that I think you have to know what a bump stock is to be in favor of more restrictive gun and, you know, registration and safety laws, uh, though it may help. Uh, nor do I think you need to know what a tight end is to have an opinion about how the NFL is responding to any number of terrible controversies that they uh, always seem to be finding themselves in. But, on the other hand, you know, if you find yourself reflexively wanting to defend the NFL or downplaying concerns about them or simply wishing to separate your politics from your entertainment, then I would just urge you to keep in mind where that desire really comes from. All of those social benefits that sports fans receive are very real and very deeply woven into our DNA, and, and that is a huge part of why so many people love sports almost fanatically, but you can't let those benefits that are real blind you to the costs to both society and the individuals involved, which are also real. Uh, so if you feel like you want to defend the NFL, and it's probably not really the NFL you want to defend, but all of those personal benefits you get from it. And if all of those benefits could be obtained through a system that wasn't systematically misogynistic and homophobic and racist and dangerous to the health of those who play the game as intended, and if that were the status quo, you probably wouldn't be demanding to introduce all of those toxic elements. And I think that goes to show that the benefits that we get from these sports don't come from the toxic parts of the game. Those are extraneous, uh, and, and the two are separate, you know. So right now, you're just afraid that if we try to change anything about the game or attack the league as a whole for their terrible management, that you may lose that special social connection that plays a really important role in your life. Uh, so I say, let's not let that happen. Let's work to recognize and fix what's wrong with this and other sports while maintaining them as an institution that plays a vital role in our society. And as for wishing to separate your sports from your politics, I'm sorry, but there simply is no such thing. The NFL is tied to politics 
with a Gordian knot, uh, you know, the various benefits it enjoys, such as uh, an exemption to our antitrust, you know, anti-monopoly laws, uh, an exemption for online gambling, the billions in tax subsidies that, that they receive to build stadiums that I already mentioned, and the millions the League takes from the Pentagon to act as a propaganda arm of the military-industrial complex. Like, all of these things are, are already baked in. There is no escaping politics, so don't even bother trying. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, as always, the number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Past our own sad stories and one